0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Spine Check, the anti Antifada side project, where we discuss some of our uh, favorite works of Marxist literature. And today we're going to talk about something that doesn't have a very big spine to bend, Value, Price, and Profit, which is a pamphlet. I actually got it in pamphlet form at a flea market. It's so beautiful. Uh, put out by international publishers with a little secret note in it from a, a, a member of the CP to... A A prospective uh, cadre leader or something like that.
1: It's a letter from a a teacher, it looks like, maybe a radical on the UFT. Uh, It's like internal Communist Party literature from 1946.
0: And it says, the assignment for the first session is as follows. One, study lessons one and two of the enclosed outline. Uh, Two, nature of capitalism, pages seven to 66. And then that's crossed out. And it says, (laughs) value, price, and profit Pages 29 to 37, Wage, Labor, and Capital, Chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. Rigorous, rigorous.
1: I like it, man. You've got to train those cadres. It's not like uh, the CPUSA was going to have a huge dive. They were you know, trying to get new membership and trying to gear up for the next level, mm-hmm. uh, next moment in the class war.
0: And so to discuss value, price, and profit, we are really excited to have... The hosts of the hottest podcast in Marxism. I'd say number one with a <laughs> bullet. Uh, real abstractions. We have Eduard and Cordelia. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having us. Hey, yeah, thanks.
0: So to start off, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourselves and the show?
3: Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we we kind of just decided that we were going to do a podcast after a thousand people told us that we we had to. Um, and we, we got together, we did, we recorded one episode and, and we pissed the right number of people off to where we decided to just kind of keep going with it. Hell yeah. Um, and, uh, for whatever reason, now we're here and, um, looking forward to the discussion actually, cause I don't know about you, but the copy I have has actually a misprint on the spine too, which makes it extra special. Oh, yeah. just so it, a capsule.
1: An extra check on that spine. You got to check the spelling too. At home, if you're listening, <laughs> check the spelling on your spine as well. <laughs> Tell us a bit about what you guys do on Real Abstractions. Like, what do you cover? Uh, what's the gist of it?
2: Yeah, um, you guys have been very generous in um, plugging it on Twitter. Um, certainly been a, a big help to us in the fledgling days. Um, as Edward said, basically, you could say we just started it out of, like, noblesse oblige. Uh, <laughs> we don't have anything particularly to say. Um, but... I mean, I don't think that stops us.
1: No, I think you do great with it. We, we, yeah, uh, we uh, get, had a great uh, introduction before the show into uh, Strafa. You, you deal with a lot of Strafa. You're not strafaists, but like it, it's very much in your wheelhouse, right?
2: I think so. That was, that was the conversation you had right before this. Mm-hmm.
0: And at Um, at home, if you don't know who Straffa is, uh, that's okay because Sean and I didn't either. (laughs) So I was saying it was interesting turning into this podcast about Marxism, like the first episode. And within five minutes, I'm like totally lost. I do not know. (laughs) But I kind of it was kind of comforting to like not know anything. It's like a vibe. Also have none of it explained to me.
1: And there's no stakes if you don't know what's going on. Right. Mm -hmm. How how cool is that? How calm is that? It's like listening to a show in like
0: Portuguese or something.
2: Um, yeah, I had a, uh, a regular at my work come in. Um, and every time he comes in, we talk about podcasts for some reason. Like the first time he ever saw me, he asked for podcast recommendations, <laughs> I guess just because I had the podcasting look in the eyes, you <laughs> um,
0: you just had earbuds dangling so, around your neck. Right.
2: <laughs> right. Well, eventually, at, but this is like months before I had one, eventually I mentioned in passing That um, I started one. He's like, oh, I've got to subscribe. Like, I've got to check it out. Like, tell me. And I'm like, it's really niche. Evan, you're not going to like it. (laughs) I'm warning you right now.
1: But he was Um, just a podhead. He had to listen to every podcast.
2: Right. And then I go on medical leave. I come back like a month later. And the first thing he says when he like, walks in, sees me the first time. He makes a beeline to me. And then he says, I listened to your podcast. I didn't understand a single thing you were saying. Full stop.
1: Amazing. <laughs> You're doing great work. That means I think.
2: Yeah. So it's sort of like, um, ambient noise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how I like to think of it. But as yeah, no I one think-
3: even knows if we're just making it all up.
0: Yeah, the, yeah, I think a lot of the names you mentioned are just fake. It's like, uh, you know, you <laughs> have like you. a random name gem- generator. <laughs> uh, but as far as I can tell, and I could be wrong, the show is about Marxism. Mm-hmm. Not just Marxists, but also other economists.
1: I think it's fair to say they're anti-Marxist.
0: But you do discuss Marxists, and we're also discussing Marxism here, but we try to, we tr- well, like, last episode we talked about society's spectacle, but we t- usually talk about Marx itself. And so I wanted to to run a quote Past you and see what you think of it. This is by a, a French communist thinker named Gilles Dauvet, mm. and he says that we should read Marx, but not the Marxists. Uh. What do you think of that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I my thing is 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 when we kind of, I mean, that's the that's the famous Marx quote that we go to all the time. Is you know, I'm not a Marxist. Is the zinger I usually pull up, which is of course always sort of ironic because it's not just I'm not a Marxist, but it's the Marx quote saying I'm not a Marxist. So it's it's always tended kind of to. Uh, to piss people off a little bit, but also I think we mean something sort of substantial by it, which is that there's, uh, the Marxists I think have have done a really bad job not just of interpreting, you know, the world or whatever, but also just interpreting Marx and that we take Marx's critique seriously enough to where we kind of want to cut through the bullshit, um, which doesn't make us, you know, no bullshit Marxists, it just makes us, I think, in a sense, not Marxists.
2: Yeah, well, um, Edward's thing is that um, he's a Marxologist but not a Marxist, and then I'm neither. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a I'm a communist, and I would make the claim that that sort of involves going through Marx to a certain extent, um, but I don't think it entails um, stopping with him or. Uh, conceding anything to him before subjecting it to the same sort of ruthless critique we would anything else. Mm.
0: So going back to something you said before, when when we're talking about uh, the bullshit that you're trying to cut through, and I had an image of that Trump flag that says, Trump, no more bullshit. and We can just replace Trump with Marx. What's, what's the bullshit that you're often cutting through.
1: Yeah. What separates you from Eric Olin Wright, who also was a no-bullshit Marxist?
2: Right. Um, I think Edward was doing a sleek, a sneaky little deep cut in that to uh, Jerry Cohen and the analytical Marxists, mm-hmm. um, who, I mean, they're a particular historical moment. You can't let me get into a digression on this because it, <laughs> it will be at the level of ambient noise for the <laughs> listeners again. But in a nutshell, um, it, you've got a bunch of these analytic philosophers. Um, well, Jerry Cohen's an analytic philosopher. Then you have like Romer, who's an economist, and Brzezowsk, who's a political scientist, all coming at Marxism and Marx through this background of like rigorous theory, and so they encounter like the edifice of Althusserian Marxism, um, right. like sort of as as it's at kind of like reaching its nadir, like um Altusarian Marxism is sort of not really generating particularly interesting or valuable work anymore. Um, and so then these guys say, let's see if we can take Marxist theories and formalize them so that we can say things about them. Um, we're not admitting any theological premises. We're not going to solve arguments by saying, Marx thought this, here's a quote, here's a Marxist.org screen cap. Um, everything's going to be solved the level of theory. Uh, we're going to treat this the same way we would the things in our disciplines. And so uh, Edward and I don't really do this. And, and these guys are sort of like, um, uh, they're they're not like particularly well-liked is, is a nice way to put it. Um, they're uh, scapegoats and popular targets for everyone else talking about how uh, Anglos missed the point of Marxism. But what we are interested in, I think, is looking at Marx's work as uh, one in a historical critical sense, the same way you see people attempt to uh, reinterpret. Uh, other texts in light of um, the particular context through which they were written. Um, And this is something I think Edward excels at. And then for me, I'm very like into like, what does this do? What's the point of this? And for me, the concrete reason that I come back to Marx and theory and all of this is because I see it as a vehicle towards a specific political end. And so the the value in any of this, <laughs> um, <laughs> not to get ahead of ourselves, <laughs> but uh, is to what extent does it um, make getting from... Here to there are more feasible. What's it doing for the real movement, basically? Um, and so I think Marx is sort of where you've got to start. Nice. Um, but I'm, I'm perfectly willing to admit Marx contradicted himself in X, Y, and Z places. And Marx was wrong about a number of things too, like flat out wrong. Um, and I'll be like sneaky about the, where those places are so I don't get dragged on Twitter. But <laughs> I'm... I'm Perfectly willing to lose face by saying that, like, um, at the end of the day, I want communism. Um, Whether I can, like, hitch myself to Marxism Mm. as a particular, uh, you could say, worldview, as Michael Heinrich would, (laughs) or you could say, almost in the same way, like, Kolakowski would, secular religion. Well, that's not really uh, my truck.
1: You don't feel the need to drag Marx's corpse across the finish line of communism.
2: Yeah. Um, And in a way that's almost liberating for Marx because there were all of these rich ambivalences and inconsistencies in Marx's work. And a lot of the tragedy, I think of the way in which Marxism and Edward is probably more qualified to speak about this than I am. But the tragedy of the way that Marxism presents Marx is that, Going on the way back to Engels, he was, of course, he did his best. He was an admirable literary executor. He did as well as any, anyone could, but he purified all of this uncertainty, all of this ambivalence, and all of the an a number of like basically irresoluble problems out of Marx. And so presented these things that were tentative, investigatory, and really like. Thorny, interesting issues, sort of as as if they were like a settled matter, Mm. and this both makes our theory less effective. um, It introduces inconsistencies, and it also makes us not really able to engage with the history of the development of Marx's thought as well. So we're making Marx a living person.
0: I mean that that was not ambient noise to me. That was a really cool answer. It was. I think it's a great place to start off with, uh, going back in time to 1865. Great year. Civil war over the first international. Yep. Um, and, uh, this is, uh, what was the first international really briefly, Sean?
1: Oh, the first international, the international working men's association was, uh, the first attempt at creating an international working men's association. It was the first like explicitly, uh, working class political body. It existed in Europe, Um, it, uh, was not very particularly, particularly successful. Uh, I forget what year it fell apart in the 18, later 1860s, there was a big split with Marx and Bakunin. You really put me on the spot here, but, uh, yeah, basically it was like, it was the first international. We've all heard of the first and the second, the third and the fourth, and maybe the fifth international. This was the first attempt at creating an international working men's party.
0: There's a bunch of socialists, socialists um, of yeah. different tendencies. What came to be
1: called anarchists were mm-hmm. also in it. Oh, let me say too, um, as I think about it a second, it was it was a very inchoate sort of organization, right? So the context of of value, price, and profit is that Marxism, you know, was not dominant in this. In fact, there wasn't any Marxism really at this point. Marx was just a guy in this group, albeit a brilliant and charismatic one. But it was a time when the working class movement, the real movement, and also the organized movement, was trying to find its feet both uh, politically and theoretically and also on the shop floor. So a lot of the dogmas that have been handed down to us were very much in flux in that time. And uh, people were arguing and debating about what the best way to make you know, working class power reality mm-hmm. across Europe.
0: And uh, in 1865, when this was written, there was a, uh, a quote unquote epidemic of strikes in Europe and uh, the central demand of these strikes was a, a call for a rise in wages. And so this guy, John Weston, who was a Ricardian economist, Ricardian socialist, and a workers representative, he comes to the general Council, the First International, and he says, look, wage increases are actually not good for the working class. <laughs> bad, actually. Uh, trade unions should not fight for a higher wage because if workers get a higher wage, then the price of commodities are going to go up and workers will be able to either buy less or other workers are going to have to take a wage cut. And so uh, Marx sees that he's he's submitted this this thesis and he's like, oh, I'm going to fucking roll up my sleeves and own this guy. Oh, yeah. Does he
1: ever? Holy shit.
0: And he's writing capital at the time. He's writing, uh, I, I assume, what will become volume three because uh, he actually wrote volume three first, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so the way that I read this and the why why I kind of wanted to talk about this is because I saw this as like kind of a a very clearly put and simple schematic for what would become the the breadth of Capital Volume One through Three, and so maybe we'll get into whether uh, that that's the case or whether this is like a good uh you know maybe replacement uh, for Capital or supplement to it. But people generally talk about it as like a good introduction, maybe.
1: Yeah, and it was unpublished in Marx's lifetime. I think only in the early twentieth century was this transcript of this speech found and, um, and given out into the world. So it was kind of a for, forgotten document until a, a certain point in time.
0: And First put out by it. his uh, daughter, Eleanor Marks Abeling. That's daughter, right? Yeah. Uh, anything you want to add before we get into, uh, Marks owning John Weston?
3: I, I totally agree with your take as far as, uh, the timing. Um, 65, he was finishing up his manuscripts for, uh, what was intended to be the the bulk of, and what Engels ended up using for the bulk of of the book three, the volume three, um, and, you know what he published as volume three, um, I I it has been used as an introduction. It was it had the appeal, and um, Eleanor even said this. You know it, it's popular, so it can it can be used for for these kinds of things where we just give it to the workers and it's accessible and all these kinds of things. And it was delivered you know for that purpose, obviously with that in mind. Um, but I, I would also kind of, I guess, and we'll probably get into this, but I, I also really would problematize because of the timing of of the writing and the delivering um, against his, his overall project. Uh, I think it, it has a lot of problems, which means that it, it falls short of really not just introducing, but even kind of delivering the same kind of analysis that you'd find in Capital by the time he's getting around to really getting going in the in the mid-60s and 70s. Yeah.
2: I wanted to make two slightly pedantic points, Um, which is maybe what we specialize in. I don't know. Um, The first being that um, so Marx isn't exactly criticizing the idea that there's a relationship between um, wages and commodity prices. He's sort of, what he's criticizing is this particular idea, which I think honestly not even Ricardo would agree with, that there's zero sum. So you see um, uh, Marx criticizing the idea that a particular um, rise in wages has a corresponding and equal in magnitude Rise in the product uh, in the prices of commodities which uh reproduce the standard of life for workers um now naturally like like all else equal, a rise in wages will increase commodity prices um and Marx talks to some extent about um the relationship between wages and the prices of what Strafa <laughs> would call basic goods, or um, basically uh, commodities that are part of the consumption basket for the reproduction of the worker. Right. Um, that's that's really the only like point I want to make. I think Mark sort of has a kind of easy target here, um, which I think explains like some of the. I mean, part of why he comes off looking so clever, and also some of the deficiencies in the piece at the same time. Um, would Ricardo contend that this is a zero-sum relationship? I think definitely not.
1: So Marx is, is putting a straw man up. Or he's using Weston's thesis in its like shallow take in order to refute Ricardoism in general?
3: I mean, I think it's even less of a, a straw man in the sense that I think really this is, in a sense, Marx it as most Ricardian in a Ricardian in a big way. What he's really doing is, and he talks, he writes to Engels about this, and he he says that you know he he potentially could publish this as a pamphlet in his own lifetime, and he asks Engels for his advice, and he says no, duh, I wouldn't, um, because Weston is not a target really worth being known for beating up. There's no like glory in
1: that.
2: It's like um, uh, and quote, quote
1: he, tweeting a small account on Twitter, right? Exactly. Yeah,
2: Marx is criticizing. An Owen who doesn't really understand Ricardo very well. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. I think Ricardo would take Marx's side on most of these points, um, with the exception of, for instance, like the particular way Marx sets labor power apart from labor, or the way in which he focuses on the constitutive uh, effective class struggle. Because he says at one point
0: that uh, Ricardo defeated or criticized this argument of Adam Smith that wages set prices
3: yeah he talks about the great merit of Ricardo. and he does he does that even implicitly a lot in the piece. And so he's and even in the sense the fight despite the fact that this is like he's talking to kind of an Owenite, he's also defending Owen at times in the pamphlet. so there's there's a sense in which I think the way that this piece has to be read, um as much as like I think it really ought to be grounded in the work he's doing um for capital, it also needs to be grounded. And of course, capital isn't. External to this, but it also has to really be grounded. And he's not really talking to to Weston. He's talking to the to the entire socialist movement uh-huh. about the, the problem with their own ideas of themselves. Uh, and so it's not just about, you know, Duncan on on Weston. It's really about mm-hmm. a constant dialogue with Proudhon that never ended, a constant dialogue with uh, with the utopians um of Owen and, and the like. So it's it's really less about, you know, these two guys you know, bantering in speech form and more about what he really wants the 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 international to be about. Because in in the beginning of the piece he's talking about how on the continent, you know, you have an epidemic of strikes and we need to come up with an answer. The one of the reasons why this is so important for him is because He's in London. He's not on the continent. And on the continent, you have French socialism, which is basically running the place. You have European socialisms, which are dominant. Um, and he is trying to more or less make his way into, you know, setting the course of the international so that he has uh, kind of as much—I don't want to say authority, but uh, you know—is really just kind of. Be- taking over as much of that slice of the pie as he can so, so that he can represent his own ideas. Hmm. Um, so this is really a, this is a much bigger project than just kind of making a joke about spoons. You know, it's it's really something ambitious for him and something which is immediately political.
1: And it, and it seems as though when you, when you read the speech that uh, he had a lot of this building up inside him for a really long time because, you know, he's sitting in the uh, London Museum, you know, like writing all these manuscripts and notes for these, this humongous project that he knows at this point in time is going to be way bigger than he even imagined. And he's got all this kind of brewing inside of him. And then it seems like Weston, what Weston's bullshit dumb take was, was it a, a, a opportunity that that he took to try to like wade into this and kind of get off of his chest, all these analyses that he'd been coming up with.
0: So let me try to take a stab again at um, the, the refutation and, and what I think might be, kind of the, the unique aspect of, of Marx's argument here. So the, the question centers around price, the price of wages, uh, the price of labor, which is wages, and the price of uh, the the necessary commodities, the commodity basket. So Marx says that price is the monetary expression of value. So this raises the question of what is value? And so he uh, asserts value as a social phenomenon, and the value of a commodity, which is something different than uh, you know if I were to just make a product myself, for my own consumption, the the commodity is a social form produced through a a division of labor. It emerges from the, the quote, common social substance of all commodities uh, through social necessary labor quantified by socially necessary labor time. So I guess what I maybe saw as the turn in Marx's argument, as opposed to maybe, I haven't read Ricardo, but maybe something that uh, uh, Ricardo hadn't developed was the differentiating uh, the value of labor, uh, just the concept of wages as the value of labor, and the value of labor power. The commodity is not the, the, the worker's labor, but uh, the worker's time and the, you know, the ability to work, which is something that can be exploited. Uh, the value of your labor could be uh, six hours work, but you get paid for three hours work, which allows the capitalist to take this profit. And the profit is so this changes profit from something that's something that's just tacked on to the real price of the commodity and it's actually included in the real price of the commodity because the commodity has that exploitation built into the social process of developing it. You think that's more or less correct?
2: I think I mean there's a lot of like potential for discourse about this um but it's interesting to what extent we consider exploitation um, a moral term. Um, and uh, William Clay Roberts talks about this a little um, in uh, his presentation of how Marx um, like introduces the term exploitation, the concept of exploitation, uh, into his writing and socialist literature, basically um, with this uh, with this lecture. Um, so what Marx wants to demonstrate is that the issue with capitalism, uh, in like a distributional sense, isn't that, uh, there's like a true value of labor or even a true value of labor power. Um, and then workers aren't getting that it's nonsense. Workers are getting that they're getting, uh, like in the long run, Um, pretty much exactly what the value of their labor is worth. Of course, Marx brackets it in this piece, and he says, I'm just being popular. Um, The phrase value of labor is meaningless. I mean value of labor power. But semantic differences aside, he says workers are getting what the value of their, their labor power actually is. And we can see this in the sense not just that there's like competition, between employers and proletarians um, and not just in the sense that it's subject to the same market prices as any other commodity, but we can see that uh, labor power is reproduced by all of these other objective uh, sorts of commodity production. It's reproduced by a particular basket of commodities um, in the same way that other commodities are. Like Like food
0: and shelter. Special in that
2: sense. Right, exactly. So in the sense that we value any, in the sense that any commodity has a value and in the sense that its price doesn't systematically diverge in a particular direction from its value, um, which Marx also says here it doesn't, uh, we can say the same is true of uh, wages uh, as the value of labor power. Workers do get that. Um, the, the trick is that he dem- tries to demonstrate here how, in spite of the fact that workers do get the value of their labor power, um, you wind up with a, uh, capitalist production process, which produces profit that lets capital continue to expand. Um, and this is the thing that he thinks, um, is the real, like, innovation over uh, Ricardo um, I have like mixed feelings about that, but I'll let someone else jump in.:
0: Well I guess just to, to put a capstone on the argument so we can get into some more of those other questions uh, he summarizes his argument in three, three ways. He says firstly, a general rise in the rate of wages would result in a fall of the general rate of profit. But broadly speaking, not affect the price of the commodities, which I basically read to mean like if you successfully have a, a struggle over raising the wage, the capitalist will take the hits. He says, secondly, the general tendency of capitalist production is not to raise, but to sink the average standard of wages. And thirdly, I want to talk about this a little bit later. Trade unions work well as centers of resistance against the encroachments of capital. They fail partially from an injudicious use of their power. They fail generally from limiting themselves to a guerrilla war against the effects of the existing system. Instead of simultaneously trying to change it, instead of using their organized forces as a lever for the final emancipation of the working class, that is to say the ultimate abolition of the wages system. And Marx says early on that there's a a deeper truth in Weston's argument, which I I wonder if that question is that if we're we're fighting only for an increase in wages, only for the betterment of working conditions and a a better standard of living for workers will only be fighting the effects and not the causes.
3: Yeah, I think that's kind of what he means by that. And he's he's pointing in general to, I mean, he's trying to be overly friendly too, right? He, at the very beginning, he's like, you know, first let's kind of commend him for coming out with an opinion which is unpopular in the eyes of the working class. So he's trying to be very civil with this, uh, despite the fact that it's still an extreme dunk. Um, But I think that's really what he's pointing to is kind of saying that at the end of the day, these kind of particular, you know, theoretical concerns, even though they are practical political concerns, um, are still short term kind of guerrilla fights over, you know, the battles, but not the war. Um, And I think he still kind of assumes that everyone in the room is going to agree or, or ought to agree that there's something bigger than just, you know, higher wages, you know, bigger cages, longer chains kind of thing.
0: Let's ask some some questions that we have about this text uh, to our guests. And and one that I have is um, when he's defining value, he says, uh, what is the common social substance of all commodities? It is labor. To produce a commodity, a certain amount of labor must be bestowed upon it or worked upon it. And I say not only labor, but social labor. A man who produces an article for his own immediate use to consume it himself creates a product but not a commodity. As a self-sustaining producer, he has nothing to do with society, but to produce a commodity, a man must not only produce an article satisfying some social want, but his labor itself must form part and parcel of the total sum of labor expended by society. It must be subordinate to a division of labor within society. It is nothing without the other divisions of labor, and on its part is required to integrate them. If we consider commodities as values, We consider them exclusively under the single aspect of realized, fixed, or if you like, crystallized social labor. So I think a lot of questions that maybe people who read Capital along uh, Heinrich's lines have is this idea that Marx is critiquing political economy. He's critiquing the labor theory of value. Uh, But here I wonder if this isn't such a, a strong refutation of it. And it, it is in fact understanding value as something that is social, but uh, very strongly determined by the the form of the commodity and commodity production.
2: Um, I don't know if, this, if Heinrich, for instance, would really take issue with anything you were saying. Um, because nobody would repudiate the idea that Marx had a theory of value. Um, and also uh, to focus in on that passage a little bit. Um, I think we can say like two interesting things about it. Um, one is that um, if we consider commodities as values, we consider them exclusively un- under the single aspect of the uh, crystallized social labor. Um, this is necessarily uh, a partial way of viewing commodities. Um, like Marx isn't saying, I'm presenting a theory of the commodity and the commodity forum. Um, and when you open Capital for this reason, uh, we begin by seeing uh, a text about the dual character of the commodity. Um, the commodity isn't considered just as value; it's also considered as a use value. Um, it's it's a, a it's a thing. Um, which presents a particular use. And Marx goes to some lengths to say that without this use, um, without the other side to it, there couldn't be a commodity. And for this reason, you encounter things that have prices but not values. Um, they they lack the other the other dimension. Um, and the other interesting thing I think we can say about this is that although Marx definitely is doing something that resembles political economy here, um, the social dimension of this labor, of socially necessary labor time, is a pretty big departure from anything that uh, past uh, political economists were talking about. Because, well, first of all, there can't be crystallized social labor in isolation from the system of general commodity production, which determines um, what labor is and isn't socially necessary. Um, The value isn't just how many hours did I work, um, plus how many hours were invested by such and such process, as you can read out of Ricardo. And it wasn't, and the value also isn't component parts, you know, something from land, something from capital, something from labor, For as Smith might have. Uh, it's socially determined by a techno by a technological process, and by these um, social conditions of production. Like it can't have value outside of this whole system encompassing it. Which determines specifically at any point in time, the ever fluctuating amount of labor, which is socially necessary, which changes as their new production processes, new technologies, all of that.
1: I've, I have a take that I got from this and I'm feeling a little uh, hesitant right now because I feel really out of my depth with our two wonderful guests. But why don't I throw it out? Because it's part of this question between... Uh, political economy and the critique of political economy and what separates Marx from, say, Ricardo or from uh, Smith. So be gentle, guys. Feel free to critique me on this if I'm really bad on it. So I said here, uh, reading the text, one could argue that it is simply a more lucid and concise presentation of capital, but that's not quite it. This, in Value, Price, and Profit, is Marx doing political economy, not critiquing political economy. Excuse me. The speech he made to the first Workingmen's Association was Marx at his most economistic and practical. After all, it was meant to give a practical answer to a practical question for a labor movement still trying to un- understand the world that was being born. So this text is not simply a clearer capital. It is one half of the sum of capital, which contains both a direct response to Smith, Mill, and Ricardo on the plane of political economy, but also the imminent critique of the laws of motion of capital that operate behind the backs of not only the producers, but of the political economists themselves. So this, is, this other Marx is Marx as the anti-economist, as an anthropologist of the material community of capital, not a policy consultant for trade unions, which is an interesting split if you think about it, this duality or dialectic between an exoteric, practical, economistic philosophy on the one hand and an esoteric anthropological philosophy that is forced to borrow terms like fetishism from the study of theology in order to even apprehend the object of critique. If the former were considered sufficient, it seems likely that Marx would have simply published a more detailed and evidential version of this speech, keeping the content clear and concise and the whole of his labors could have been completed by the 1860s. Instead of just describing the strict laws of motion of commodity production, he begins to dabble in the arcane and occult where the tables dance and commodities take on a life of their own when they leave their hidden abodes. So it's clear that Marx was doing two things, political economy and critique of political economy. Maybe even looking at capitalist society from the standpoint of the working class, but at the same time from the standpoint beyond the working class. I think that among other things, this is Marx trying to not merely explain the complicated workings of value, but also expressing why it is so hard to see the true workings of exploitation, that there is something mystifying to capital itself that can only be explained by way of analogy, and whose workings can only be expressed in form-determined processes, not tons of iron or coats of linen. So maybe it's wrong to call the, the new Marx lecture or value form theory more correct or true or more keeping with Marx intention than the economistic Marx of Anwar Sheikh and vice versa. Maybe the practical political economy of value, price, and profit is a roadmap for the concrete struggles in the day-to-day of capitalist life and work. And maybe the philosophical critique of political economy of parts of the Grundrisse and capital is a roadmap for the abstract political struggle that points to that which must be dissolved if capital is to be overcome. And maybe these two projects, which seem incommensurable, are in fact part of the same totality. Is that What, what do you guys think about my uh, my little spiel there? It was a moment of inspiration.
3: So, yeah, I would... So there's a couple things. One of the one of the fun things about that is you talk about the potential of it being published as a pamphlet uh, in the middle of that. Um, uh, and, you know, why he didn't or why, you know, and the the no, the meeting, the, like the minutes of the of the meetings, they said that it may have been finances. Um, that's probably not true because, I mean, Engels is filthy rich, so they could have financed it pretty easily. Um, I think there's a much better case to be made. And again, I think we have to go back to where he is in his writing, which is just that, one, this is that kind of, you know, exoteric sort of presentation, but also that by the time he's, he's in 65, he's finishing up, um, the bulk of what he kind of intended to be bulk, to be book three, right. He's now about to start rewriting volume one from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't intend to write the book that he wrote. So when he's going into 66, um, He's basically expecting that Volume 1 is going to begin with just kind of, if anything, a brief summary of the the 1859 contribution to the critique of political economy. Because if you read the 59 contribution and then you compare it to Chapter 1, there's obvious similarities between the two. Um, and the, the first citation of, of Capital Volume 1 is the contribution. He cites himself because, you know, he's modest. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's kind of – it's when you think about what he's doing in his in- intellectual development, uh, and the fact that he felt the need not just to revise it for the publication of of, of the first edition, uh, which he then you know had to add like an appendix of the the sort of a popularization of the value form section, but then to have to reinsert that appendix. Uh, into the main text for the second edition, and then to have a French edition, which he thought was even more scientific in some aspects than the earlier two editions, which he'd released in German. So the text that we read today, and comparing it to, especially to the speech in 65, um, but also, of course, the text of volume one in 67, is that there's just such a gap, such a change in his life that he's undergone in terms of his thought, that as jarring as it is to go from 65 to a text that we associate with 67 and say, you know, how did he go from, you know, exoteric popularized conceptions uh, of a very Ricardian style to this sort of esoteric imminent critique that um, especially Lydia and I like to associate him with. Um, I think the the longer view starts to make, you know, give it some more sense. Um, But also I think the 65 stuff being that it's placed right up against the the uh, the drafting of the you know the manuscript for Book three, this is when he's explicitly concerning himself with things like falling rates of profit, things like the transformation problem, which he's not just, you know inventing, he's inheriting it from the classical political and economic tradition, especially from Ricardo. So this is really him on Ricardian terrain. Um, and so I think that a lot of what we kind of now identify, as sort of problematic in our reading of Marx comparing value, price, and profit to capital really stems from the fact that he has these ambivalences. Um, he has this incomplete break with political economy in the mid-60s that he only starts to really kind of chisel away at and never really finishes by the yeah. time of his death. He, he by, by the time he's a year or two from his death, he was writing that he wanted to actually start the whole thing from scratch. He wanted to re- totally revise volume one. For a third edition, which he never got to do, uh, or for a fourth edition, he was going to have a third edition with minor changes, and then he wanted a fourth, completely revised edition of Volume 1, and he wanted to start Volumes 2 and 3 from scratch. So this is not a finished project for him, Uh, and so it's it's part of the reason why I think there's this gap between a political economy, or maybe we could um, generously call it a a critical political economy, Mm -hmm. and the critique of political economy, which is a completely different project
1: it's like a phase shift in his thought it's happening at this time so 2 years later he's unable to to reprint this you know in in some expanded form and be able to to stand by it because he's moved past uh like like we said political economy into critique so is that not wrong am i kind of right about that
0: well Sean what i really liked about what you had to say is that there, there is this aspect of Marx, uh, of Marx and, you know, the Marx, Marxists that follow that point to how difficult the problem of what it means to fight capitalism is. Uh, how, and you, you could pose that question in a way that ultimately makes it feel very futile. And I think maybe Marx saw an inkling of that in Weston's argument when, he, when there's this wave of strikes, like the workers are, you know, uh, are, are moving all over the continent demanding higher wages and an economist says, well, wait a second, maybe that's not good. And, and and you get that, you know, ultimately in trade union consciousness when trade unions will say, well, what's actually best for the working class in this instance is austerity and a wage cut. And if we really want working class power, we need to be part of this broader, healthier economy. And Marx is really, you know, I think his, you know, at the core of everything he's doing in economics is fighting against that and trying to be on the side of. Of workers' struggles, however limited they might be, um so he is trying to square that circle of just you know the problems of this concept of an economy that's sort of like self regulating um and and a, and a closed logical circuit, and the often irrational and chaotic uh, actions of the working class
2: so I think I liked your hot take um I thought it was interesting um And I will raise you a hot take of my own.
1: Please, please, please Um, do it for the first time on the podcast. That would be incredible.
2: Yeah, well, this is sort of a semi, a semi novel hot take um, in response to this. But I would say the things that make Marx's theory of capitalism logically adequate to the logic of capital are ironically also things that uh, limit what we can do with it predictively. Um, so this is sort of the challenge I'm going to pose to you. Um, when we so stepping back a second to uh, what you said earlier, um, you're sort of counterposing as people do. Um, we have like an economic marks and we have an anthropological marks. Uh, And this is a split you see a lot. People like to say there's an early Marx who has this economic and philosophical manuscript type um, critique of capitalism. And then you have a later Marx who's doing political economy. um, And the political economy shows how certain things are just and certain things are unjust and so on. And if that was an adequate conception of Marx's project, I would say, yes, the two would be uh, mutually interdependent because a critical political economy um, would be something like I'm conducting a study of how capitalism works and then I impose onto it from the outside exoterically uh, I, I, um, a particular system of ethics, a particular critique of what this does to people. Um but Marx is very clear. He's not doing that when he's at his best. That's sort of what he's doing in like the manuscripts era, maybe. But by the time he gets to like the heights of capital, it becomes clear that he's doing something almost akin um, to what, to me, he was doing um, back uh, in his critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, um, a particular project that he inaugurated with the comment on uh, Mill, um, which is that he's conducting an ontological and methodological critique of political economy itself. It isn't just that exploit that we have um, that exploitation is uh, hidden and obscured and needs to be demystified to reveal that workers could get the surplus. I mean Ricardian socialists thought that Ricardian economics made it clear that uh, we have a a distribution of surplus between profit and between labor. We can have more go to labor. We can have more go to profit. We can sort of drag the slider back and forth to say all the surplus is going to workers. It's all going to capital. Um, And either way, it's basically going to be zero sum. Presumably, since the workers do the work, the workers should get all of it. Marx isn't doing that. Um he's saying we cannot do this. Um these uh particular constructs and entities in political economics, um what the they're mystifications not in the sense that they hide things for political reasons. Um they're also mystifications in the sense they the the um whole analysis of fetishism is about the fact that, um, we have created these objects and categories, which in, uh, which arise out of, uh, the relations of people, like the real material, social relationships between you and me. Um, but, uh these uh, particular objects and categories have come through uh, to actually possess the power of uh, real things. They've become um, alien forces uh, with the capacity to actually uh, act as if they were these like a priori, um, Objects, these like uh, these particular, like almost like uh, metaphysical entities that they are in political economy. Um, I mean, the thing is, ultimately, um, there are all of these contradictions in not just in capitalism, also in political economy, but the real thrust of Marx's work um, is that these contradictions aren't just within our theories of political economy. Through his critique of political economy, he's found real contradictions that actually exist. And in fact, what we have to do is abolish them in reality. Uh, We can't come out of this with perfectly consistent theory of a system that works as it should because there are contradictions to our system of to our theory of political economy and the the contradictions um stem from the fact that these are contradictions which exist in our lives um so circling back to like the the final bit about like uh, predictive power what can this do for trade unions etc um in this role, uh, giving this speech, he is to an extent like offering specific suggestions. Um, he's, he's countering basically a very unpopular doctrine. Uh, there aren't, the workers aren't overcome by the idea that they should stop asking <laughs> for higher wages. Like Marx didn't really need to offer this corrective. Uh, Weston was not exactly meeting much of a response Um, he did himself well politically by attacking someone who was, uh, not exactly advocating for a popular position. Um, but besides this, uh, particular point, um, which I think like even Ricardo could have made, um, I, yeah, the, the hot take in like a broad sense is that, um, if there were a perfectly adequate theory of political economy, one which possesses predictive power, um, I think that would, uh, I think on the first like point one, I think that that isn't really possible Um, because there are real contradictions to capitalism which are necessarily reflected in our logical theory of it. But the second point is, I'm not even really convinced that this would uh, be to the benefit of workers entirely, particularly in the present day. Um, If I were to be really tendentious here, I'd argue that um, part of the reason why we should invest a little less of our attention in just the rudiments of political economy and more in the critique of political economy is that political economy, like a perfect predictive theory of political economy would be great for someone whose job is stabilizing or regulating capitalism, but of relatively limited use to trading. And sure, Marx comes out of this with like limited optimism. He says, yeah, you guys can increase the labor share at the expense of the capital share and you'll get a little more. That's fine. But the at, at the end of the day, it's you're still in capital." We're at this for abolishing the wages system, for abolishing uh, wage labor and its mutually necessary counterpart capital. Um, Just like agitation for increasing the labor share, uh, that's never going to be good enough. Um, And this theory doesn't even really get us there. So this is my
0: final question on this is uh, he's calling for the abolition of the wage system. And a couple decades later, there would be the emergence of militant trade unions, largely, you know, syndicalists and anarchists, including the IWW that did set its horizon on the abolition of the wage system. Um, so do you think that form of struggle got it right? Or do you think they're still missing something about the deeper critique of not just wages, uh, but value itself?
3: I would say that I think he's, again, like this has to be kind of grounded, right? Is that on the one hand, it's, it's really less about making the particular points, which I think he feels everyone in the room more or less not only should agree on, but uh, like we've said, is it, it was an unpopular position. It's not like he really had to do this. Um, so just him driving the point home um, at the end uh, shouldn't even really be super, super shocking. Um, but I also think that, and maybe this is a take, but that uh, as far as, when we come when we talk about like the abolition of value and things like that a lot of that language really just does, does come out of the the 20th century literature um, I think of course it it jives with what he's saying but I think the fact that he didn't you know come out and, and just you know you know quote communizers doesn't mean necessarily mm-hmm. that he uh, wasn't on board with that sort of stuff. I think abolition of the wages system for him is the abolition of of commodification, which is the abolition of, you know, and not just like in a Polanyian sense of, you know, we abolish the naughty commodities to keep the good ones because those are unnatural and these are natural, but, you know, really to say that we want to do away with the thingification itself, uh, which is, you know, goes back to that sort of the fetishism that he deals with in Capital, which he doesn't really um, adequately deal with any time before that.
1: So maybe as we get close to the end, um, let's talk about the unfinished pro- project. Uh, we, we've talked about these tensions that exist in, uh, in Marx's theory and how those are reflected in the real world. What does Real Abstractions think about uh, what, what can be resuscitated from the project and what needs to be worked on further?
3: I think we both have kind of agree that, I mean, on the one hand, And this is not even this is lukewarm Heinrich take, which is that it's an unfinished project. Um, Volume one, even though it was published, was not we can't really treat it as if it's a finished project up until his death. He really is constantly not just working at it with like slight editorial tweaks, but he's really constantly undergoing new research. I mean, he's living through um, not just crises, but. You know, really, just groundbreaking crises—things that have never happened before. He had his conception of crisis in the in the 1850s was so different than by the time he gets to the 70s, because in the 50s he thinks the crises are just kind of this little momentary bursts, and then by the 70s you have a a, a first long crisis. In the 50s you have the first really global crisis. So he's just living in, in, you know, at the right time, taking all of this new information in. That it's really hard to say that he ever completes his work. Because and this is one of the reasons why he never got around to publishing it. it, isn't just because even though he always said and part of it is I think he was lying to his publisher and to Angles, you know, saying oh it'll be ready in a week in a couple of months I'll be done, but that he really was constantly revising and and self-criticizing uh, his own conceptions, um, and that means that on the one hand, you know that means that we have an unfinished work and it's open-ended and that maybe it has it has its merits, which is that we can use it kind of you know for our own you know, scavenging to kind of see what we think is useful. Uh, it also means that there's a problem with the editions we have, which means that the volume one that you and I read isn't the volume one that he wanted to write at any point in his life, and except for when he published it, um, it's not the the book plan that he had in the 50s. It's not the book plan that he um, was going to carry through uh, at the end of his life. So, in a sense, it really I think we have to problematize the entire project. That doesn't mean dismiss it. But it it does mean that we we kind of have to be conscious um, of it. And also, this is, I guess, the the point made earlier, which is that this can't end with Marx. Um, He did a lot of the heavy lifting, a lot of the legwork for us. But if we just stop with what he gave us, then we have to admit that we've kind of reached an impasse, a dead end. And that, uh, honestly, a lot of the answers he gave us are unsatisfactory. And then you have to kind of say, okay, well, let's talk about Sraffa. Let's talk about somebody else to try and fill these holes. um, When really, I think... Um, the ambivalences in the text show potential avenues of you know, further research that can be useful, politically useful, not just theoretical, you know, uh, the- theoretically generative. Um, and I think that's kind of how, where you have to go with that, is that this is a text which is a speech which had an ending, which was deliberately given, but the fact that it was never published, even though it was talked about being published, already shows uh, his own anxieties over the, his own output. And that was a thing, a common thread throughout his whole life is that he barely published anything when you really look at it compared to the things that he didn't publish, which we only just now have.
2: You asked a concrete um, political question, which is basically like, what does this say for us about what we should do apropos of organization and trade unions? Um, And I think this actually presents, and I'll be brief, uh, a really good example of um, a place where we should consider what Marx said, and then we should consider maybe what we can like pluck out of history. Um, And Marx for the, in the the, uh, large part, I would say, and this was generally vindicated, like there seems to be good evidence that uh, labor unions um, and strong worker organization can increase the labor share Um, at the expense of the capital share um, and that this is like by and large a good thing. You don't experience rises in um, commodity prices equal to the additional income workers are getting, of course. Um, But also there's a certain pessimism you can pull from this also. Um, Because you. it seems like uh, we're arriving at a Like there are all of these societies with tons of organization, sectoral bargaining, a very, very high labor share. Um, And in a way, this actually is sort of ambivalent for us uh, as communists with a specific political project. Um, And for me, the failure of the Meidner plan in Sweden says something about this. Um, One of the analytical Marxists uh, made a point about this in a book called Paper Stones, um, where he suggested, actually, maybe it isn't entirely a great thing that we're able to win an increased labor share through all of this organization, because it means what Engels calls uh, the, the temporary privation of the switch from capitalism to something else is going to be a lot more drastic um the it means that you wind up in a position where um capitalist wrecking um can uh countervail to a substantially greater extent the expropriation of the bourgeoisie um and it isn't exactly obvious to me that the nordic Compared to say the US Although they're definitely more pleasant places to live Are in a place Where they're looking closer to Communism Anytime soon, closer to revolution Um This isn't just a sterile theoretical matter Um And it isn't like just one that Um You should view in terms of like what Existing institutions should do Um I think both Edwad and I come in it from a position of being, first and foremost, like communists. Uh, We're coming at this with a political conviction, political ends. Um, And so we can say "Mm, Marx was sort of right here. Um, Also, it seems like he was sort of wrong in a way that he couldn't really have anticipated and we should look at thinking creatively um, because, like, the man had no consistent thought on political tactics Mm -hmm. throughout his life. Like, he was changing his mind, like, down to the last minute, and so was Engels. I mean, there was so much going on politically throughout both their lifetimes in Europe. Um, You can't really move from their theory to... Uh, like tactics we can counterpose onto different positions uh, and different points in time, um, which is borne out not just theoretically but also like and how much these guys vacillated um, in terms of like revolution, in terms of reform, in terms of whether we'd ever get universal suffrage, in terms of what universal suffrage would mean for communists, like all of that. Um, at some point, we've got to be grounded in um, a, uh, material analysis of history, um, and maybe some creative thinking.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think what you've really done, we've all done on this episode is validated something that hopefully this podcast has uh, been doing for years now, which is, uh, taking this position that, um, the holy writ and the dogma of certain Marxist theories and historical Marxist parties, is not the dogmatic writ that we should be taking without any question it 's one that we should always interrogate and I think uh, hopefully this episode is one more reason why our listeners out there who consider themselves communists uh, can try to start thinking these through them these these issues, these tactics, these strategies through themselves and understand that in so many ways, in 150, 160 years since uh, this was published, that uh, there's a whole different world with a whole different class composition. And that while we're given this evolving body of work, because people are still working on it, we really have to take it upon ourselves as communists to think critically and dynamically about uh, the world that we're in now and not simply rely on Let's say a worldview from the past, dogmas from the past that uh, simply try to transpose something that happened 100, 150 years ago onto the present as though there are these sort of eternal tactics or these eternal programs that exist uh, that we can just call call from history for
0: Good Andy yeah,' well, that was great um really fascinating discussion uh, it was. Really fun talking about this text with you.
1: I was really challenged. I got to say, I'll just be honest. This is maybe the most challenging show we've done. As uh, we ought to be. As we ought to be. And I can only thank my guests for that. Our guests.
2: Thank you for having us. Yeah, definitely. It was a pleasure.
1: Awesome. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you soon.